0: A red deer hind is shot on a Scottish hillside and if conservationists have their way there'll be a lot more of that happening here in the highlands. Conservationists believe there's a huge overpopulation of red deer in their main highland range which is bad for the environment and bad for the deer themselves. I went for a walk up a mountain with Mike Daniels of the wildland charity the John Muir Trust to find out just why such charities believe Many more deer must die.
1: So we're on East Shehalion, which is uh, right in the heart of Scotland. And we're in a partnership with a whole lot of neighbors here, which we are all trying to regenerate the woodland and enhance the ecological value of this place. The real challenge of deer management in Scotland goes back to a cultural thing. So you, you have to really look across the world to see how deer are managed. And we've got a very unusual system here, which is basically voluntary and is based on very high deer numbers those two features are are almost unique and they create a whole lot of social, economic and environmental problems really. The rationale really kind of stems from a Victorian sporting culture where the key asset is seen as the sporting stag. And basically the the deer management in inverted commas is, is around trying to maximize that. And there's a kind of a theory that the more deer you have, the more stags you'll have and the more sport and guests you can take out. Each estate is valued on a whole range of things, but one of the factors that's taken into account is it add on about £50,000 per every sporting stag that would normally be taken. And the other way is the gamekeepers or stalkers that take guests out, they're rewarded and they're incentivised and actually given tips for the number of stags or the good day out they have on the hill shooting a stag. So if you're working in that environment, naturally it's in your interest to try and make sure your clients get a good day and therefore they want to come across as many stag shooting opportunities as possible.
0: And the impact of that is that the states are motivated just to have High densities.
1: Essentially, yes. I think most landowners would say they're trying to manage the land sustainably as they see it. But you know, fundamentally that is the main motivation for a large part of the country that's managed for deer management, yes. The problem that really causes is it's not so much the hunting or the shooting. That's that's fine. And, and we, we recognize really that because there are no natural predators, deer need to be controlled. Perversely it's the opposite, that's the fact they're not controlled enough. So that these high deer densities carry significant impact. Here we are going through a A typical deer fence in in Scotland, which requires going through a big iron gate. And the reason we need this fence is that although we own the land here, deer from our neighbours come into this area. The only way really to get the trees to get away is to shoot the deer and combined with that in some situations where you can't control enough of the deer, is to put a fence up.
0: There's a big elaborate structure here. The timber, as you say, the gate. That's all expense, isn't it?
1: Yeah it's a huge cost and that's a huge cost that other countries just don't have to bear and so we're doing this purely to get woodland and it's the same cost that private forestry companies have to pay we have to pay through the Forest Commission as the public and a lot of conservation estates, and indeed private states that want to regenerate woodland I mean these fences here all they do really is treat the symptom and not the cause so it can only last for 20 years and then it'll fall down you'll have to do it again and during that period you get a great clump of regeneration gets away But then what happens? You know, The fence comes down, the deer come back in, and they destroy all the regeneration again. I would say the vast majority of the uplands of Scotland, uh, the grazing pressure over hundreds of years has has just really hammered the woodland. And so, as I said, we've had to fence this to get the woodland to regenerate. At the same time, if you reduce the grazing, all the, the other vegetation, the heather and the grasses and the millennia we're walking through here, they can start to choke out the trees. And so, again, you need this kind of balance where you've got a small enough grazing impact. You've got some deer in here, which would naturally be here, that open up clearings that seeds can get away. Um, And so fencing really isn't the solution. It's a last gas, desperate measure to try and save the last bits of woodland that we have. Presumably the aim is eventually to get rid of the fence but to have the deer numbers
0: here down to a level where you don't need a fence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the ideal across the country, is to have the deer numbers at a low enough level that woodland can naturally generate in the presence of deer. More and more people are looking at this and saying, we can generate woodland without the cost of fencing just by reducing the population. But it needs to be encouraged <laughs> with a stick as well as a carrot. And at the moment, the stick isn't there. There's no regulation, and it's left up to people to do what they want. Could you put a number on how many you think there should be in terms of red deer? It's a million-dollar question. There's a guy called Frank Fraser Darling. And in the 1960s and, and 50s and 60s, he did a, an ecological study of Scotland. And at that point, there were 60,000 red deer in the highlands, and that was probably getting to be too many. 40 years later, 50 years later, we're now sitting at four or 500,000. Densities in most of Europe for red deer are 10 or 100 times less, 0.1 or 1 deer per square kilometre, whereas in Scotland, we're up to 15, 20 quite often. The densities of deer need to be 10 or 100 times less than they are across most of Scotland now.
0: There is also a perverse issue of deer welfare where what you basically say is we need to shoot a lot more deer for the deer's
1: own good. Yes, I mean it's a bit of a contradiction in terms because presumably killing an animal isn't in the animal's own good but it's the ones that are left if you like. At the moment we have these big die-offs, they're called natural die-offs of deer in spring in Scotland and it can be in thousands or tens of thousands of deer. We get people contacting us, a lot of hill walkers all over the country, just come across sheltered bits next to a fence where a whole group of deer has just given up the ghost. They've been trying to get into the shelter and they're just lying there dead in in piles. You know, it can be dozens of deer sometimes. And it's really because two things are missing. One is shelter, that's the biggest one really, and also the quality of food they've got available. They start to lose condition and actually they use the, the reserves of fat in their bone marrow. So they're right down to the very last bit of energy they have. And then when the spring comes, and the irony is this fantastic new growth comes, new grass, it's too late, they can't process it. So they just end up just dropping dead and just literally falling over. Starving to death must be one of the worst welfare issues you can have. Over
0: the coming months, ministers will be deciding what should be done after receiving a report by a special working group set up two years ago to review the system of deer management here in Scotland. One measure backed by conservationists would see all landowners facing government-imposed cull numbers or killing targets. Many will resist that because it will fundamentally change the way they operate. So how do they go about the bloody but apparently necessary business of managing our red deer herds? I spent a day with Alastair Chalmers the head stalker of the Glenartney estate in Perthshire to find out. At Glenartney they still use ponies to move deer carcasses we're going to head around the east end of the estate, along the path, and we'll kind
2: of work into the wind. But the mist level, as you can see, is fairly low, and I think because it's so mild, the deer will be in the tops. So we'll work our way around and see what we can see.
0: We're carrying on around the hillside here, and every now and then we'll stop and the guys will have a look with the binoculars up onto the hill. I can't see any sign of anything, but that's where the hinds that we're after will be.
2: We've got the shelter on the left-hand side of the hill here, and the mist isn't quite as bad as we were looking at, so we'll drop into the the burn and we'll just kind of work our way up the burn having a look on the left-hand side in the shelter, and hopefully kind of catch something just below the mist level.
0: We're now walking up the burn. It's quite rough going up here. It gives us the cover we need to make sure that the deer can't see any movement. I'm told they're very sensitive to any movement that they see.
2: We had deer above us, which were obviously shifting into the wind. But I suppose what I'm trying to do just now is I'm trying to set it up for later on in the day where the deer will be around the corner. So stalking, I suppose, is like a big game of chess. Your deer are your your pawns and you're you're moving them around.
3: There's a big herd here, actually just here, massive herd.
0: All oh, right, yeah.
3: I'm Matt Brooksbank from Shropshire. I've stopped here for a good few years. I love the outdoors, I love the mountains and so on. I was born on a farm, I shoot uh, and I fish as well so it's just enjoying the outdoors. And also of course these guys have got a job to do and if we can come up and... And do that job, then all to the good, really. I guess um, there's a certain element of the hunter gatherer in certain uh, numbers of us, but you're taking off the beasts that need to be taken off. So I quite like the idea that you're taking off the weaker, the older beasts, and you're maintaining a good, solid gene pool to really increase the health of the herd.
2: I get as much enjoyment out of stalking with a guest as I do of culling deer. I wouldn't be doing the job I do if I didn't enjoy culling deer but I get as much enjoyment out of using my brain every single day. I've been doing it for 26 years now, and I can't imagine doing anything else.
0: So we're lying down quietly now, and Alistair and Matt have headed up the burn to try and get to within a couple of hundred yards of the deer. But the deer seem to know that something's happening. There's a group of about 13 or 14 of them. That's the deer gone up into the mist now, so I suspect that'll be the end of that effort. After crisscrossing the hill a couple of times at a rapid speed, we're now coming down and hopefully there'll be a small group of hinds below us. We've just slipped and slithered about 100 yards down the hill and Alistair's getting the rifle out now just over the lip of this grass where I can't see there'll be a hind or a pair of hinds perhaps so he's just lining it up he's getting in his sights and Matt will actually take the shot he's there with him he's taking the gun now They've hit a hind. You can see the deer rolling down the hill now, and the other deer have shot off away to the left now. It's quite an adrenaline-filled moment. We've come down the hill now to find the deer. and We've actually found that there are two animals that have been shot and killed. Matt, what do we think's happened?
3: Well, Alistair um, is of the opinion that there's a ricochet, which does.
0: Occasionally happen. Both are dead as we arrive to them. So, a successful day out, and now we've got to get the venison back to the deer larder. At the end of one of the hardest days I've ever spent in the hills, Chalmers is left with two 50 kilogram carcasses worth just £100 apiece. There are two wages to pay and other costs year round, despite the limited stalking season. I asked the Drummond's estates factor, Michael Aldridge, how the economics of it works
4: we finance the deer management by effectively selling let stags to paying guests and we are perhaps also unusual in that we manage to sell the vast majority of our hind stalking to shooting enthusiasts who will, will come up and pay for a day's sport. Without that income there would be nothing coming in to pay the wages it is as simple as that we sell the venison but that only goes so far.
0: Michael told me that Glenartney estate has already been steadily moving towards more environmentally friendly deer management but what impact would nationwide government imposed cull levels to ensure better woodland generation
4: have on the estate? We are producing a product that is very attractive to sportsmen and they will pay a price for that we would not be able to deliver that business with a very substantial reduction of dear numbers our business as it stands today would not be sustainable and there would be a substantial reduction in the number of people employed at present Deer cull levels across the Highlands
0: are decided by Deer Management Groups, which bring together multiple landowners. Many of the members are private owners, but they include the state-owned forestry estate and charity owners such as the John Muir Trust. The chairman of the Association of Deer Management Groups is Richard Cook, and I met up with him in a Highland garden. I first asked him what he expected from the government review.
5: The question is whether their recommendations will be a case of evolution or revolution. Um, my preference would be for evolution. I think the deer sector has made huge progress over the last recent years but we really have a very high level of government intervention already and if you increase that it falls a little short of a fully regulated system in which case the flexibility of the voluntary approach would be lost and that's really important because deer management is so different in different places different combinations of land managers, different combinations of objectives and above all different geography. So that flexibility is very much in the public interest and at the moment I would say it's at its minimum. Further intervention by SNH, the government agency, could very well be counterproductive. This sector works very closely with Scottish Natural Heritage. We have a good level of understanding with them. Uh, They're often criticised for being insufficiently muscular and using all their statutory powers I would argue that the reason they haven't done that is because they're quite good at talking it through with people and persuading them when things need to change and they haven't actually had to reach for the, their big stick. We're in a situation of quite fast changing evolution actually. Deer management groups have been asked to take on board the fact that what they do has a strong public interest element in it. Now the deer sector has actually responded remarkably well to that. The process of changes has actually been very rapid. And I would say that to continue that, we need encouragement, not more criticism. Red deer numbers on the open range are probably about where they should be. The problems we're coming up against now are where deer are overflowing the open range and to be found in forestry and farmland. If you look at any of the deer management plans, you will see that they are all bought into woodland expansion. There are strong government incentives to support that at the moment. Also to peatland restoration. What would happen if a compulsory
0: cull were to be introduced?
5: Well, the first thing is they would need an army of professional cullers to do it. The people who do the cull at the moment are all locally based, resident largely um, professional stalkers, and they're already pretty much at capacity, frankly. And I would point out that the cost of the cull that's taken at the moment is very largely a private cost, it's not a public cost. If we talk about a very heavy level of compulsory culling to reduce the deer population to a level of three or four per square kilometre across Scotland as a whole, then the capacity of the industry to achieve that in a short space of time is just not there. It would have an impact on resident jobs. You might need an itinerant workforce employed entirely to uh, undertake major culls. The
0: issue of deer welfare and preventing starvation mentioned by Mike Daniels is one that can't be ignored. Bob Elliott is the director of Scottish animal charity One Kind and a reader director of The Ferret. He gave me the charity's view on killing deer.
6: We are very conscious that the deer numbers in Scotland are high in quite a few areas and there is certainly an argument that deer should be, and are being, uh, killed for conservation reasons. We know that things have to die in certain circumstances. Our general approach would be that it's done in the most, most efficient and humane way possible if the evidence suggests it has to be done. So you'll be looking at conservation evidence from nature reserves, long-term management planning, so that people are actually measuring how many deer there are, they're measuring the vegetation, browsing. You know, there's tangible outputs to the killing of the animal. Culling of red deer needs to happen properly, safely. The training levels need to go up. I wouldn't go for the paying client model. I would go for more to do with subsidising landowners to be able to do it properly. My organisation wants to be satisfied that every single red deer that's shot in Scotland, it's done uh, in the most humane way possible and uh, for the right reasons.
0: The government's wildlife agency, Scottish Natural Heritage, was criticised by MSPs two years ago for its handling of deer management. Donald Fraser, operations manager for SNH, says numbers of deer did increase over the decades, though not on the scale that Mike Daniels suggests, and the
7: situation is now gradually improving. We know that there has been an increase since the 1960s up to early 2000s, which has then kind of levelled off since then and we know that the culling effort has played a, a major role in that. The cull has ranged but from from the 1960s to from about 16% of the, the, the population up to about 23% of ah. the population, so enough to cause that shake in the population. The, the evidence shows that it was about 160,000 deer in the early 1960s, uh, up to the, around the, the 400,000 in 2000. We've done a lot of work o- over the last number of years, and particularly since 2016, work with partners to including ADMG and the associated Deer Management Groups in the uplands, to make sure that the, the public interest is at the heart of deer management. So through developing deer management plans, trying to work more collaboratively with a, a range of public bodies to make sure that our priorities are aligned in terms of the work that we are doing. And for our perspective as a regulator, we've been making sure that we've been more effective at looking at particular areas of damage that are occurring throughout Scotland, and working with those deer management groups in those areas through Section 7 agreements and the like to make sure that there's more of a focus on, on preventing the damage that's taking place. And has that had a, a visible, noticeable impact? Well, we've seen a significant change, I think, in terms of certainly in the upland deer range, there's a far better integration of the kind of environmental element of the work uh, along with the, the other objectives of land managers. In the past there has been a kind of polarisation of views I think in terms of from an environmental perspective and particularly a sporting or land management perspective where there are different objectives there. But certainly the process that we've gone through over the last two, three, five years is to try and make sure that there is a more integration, there's a better understanding of the different objectives and that the environment is more ingrained within the management of, of deer in Scotland. So the independent deer working group are likely to look at the voluntary approach that we currently have in Scotland, whether a more statutory approach is required. We're very keen to maintain our approach to using the range of powers that we've got from our advisory intervention and regulatory powers, and we're more focused on that regulatory aspect to make sure that we're dealing with more pronounced issues throughout Scotland.
0: But back on Shehalion, Mike Daniels is adamant that imposing coal
1: levels is essential. The fundamental point is we need a much more regulatory system that rather than just letting it up to landowners decide how many deer they want to shoot, it's just purely decided by the state as to how many deer it should be culled.
7: Listening to the Business of Ferrets podcast. You can find out more at theferret.scot.